You're listening to audio from Hardin Baptist Church. For more audio content or other information about our church, please visit hardinbaptist.org. All right, well, if you have your Bibles, you can go to 1 Peter chapter 1. That's where we're going to be at. 1 Peter chapter 1. You know, if you were to ask me what my favorite movie is, I would probably tell you Star Wars Episode Six: Return of the Jedi. I think I'd probably land there. But it would take me just a moment because I always go back and forth between Return of the Jedi or A New Hope. Those are kind of the two that just push comes to shove, I go back and forth between the two. But it would definitely be Star Wars, one of those two. But you know, just think about Star Wars, uh, A New Hope, that actually wasn't the original title to the movie. Um, it was actually The Adventures of Luke Starkiller. That was the original title to the original Star Wars. It was on the, the, the sort of the manuscripts as George Lucas is trying to make this movie. So The Adventures of Luke Starkiller. So imagine if that was the first episode. But when it actually came to the movies in 77, they dropped the title and it was just Star Wars. So if you were there, all you saw was Star Wars. How many of you guys were there in 77, saw the actual movie? Pretty cool, right? Those historical event. Um, so you actually saw that it came on Star Wars and you saw this like transport in this other world and it became what is known today as Star Wars. But then another movie came out, which is Star Wars number two and Empire Strikes Back. But when you went and saw it, it wasn't episode two, it was episode five. And it confused a lot of people because they're like, wait, did I just miss like four movies? Like what happened? We went from Star Wars to episode five, Empire Strikes Back. Well, then George Lucas re-released the original Star Wars, but it wasn't episode one. It was episode four in 81, and it had a new title. It wasn't The Adventures of Luke Starkiller. Instead, it was A New Hope. And so for the first time you went and you saw not just Star Wars, but Star Wars episode four, A New Hope. And it just strikes me of why would George Lucas choose, I mean, Luke Starkiller, that's pretty cool. Why would he trade it for A New Hope? Why that word hope? I mean, here, by, by this time, he knows this is a big deal. Like I'm making toys, and like it's gonna be a big deal and it does turn into be a big deal. So why? Why the word hope? Why would you grab onto the word hope as you build this entire galaxy, this entire empire? Why would you pin it all on this word hope? A new hope. Well, I think the reason is because hope, it is a very powerful thing. Like hope is something that you don't just need if you're rebels on Hoth because you're trying to overthrow the empire. Like hope is something that we all need that we all desperately need. In fact, it's been said that you can live without food for 40 days, you can live without water for four days, you can live without air for four minutes, but you can't live without hope for four seconds. And it really is true. Like if you are hopeless, if you're in a place without hope, that is a very dark spot. You are in danger of not making it through if you are hopeless. So we all need hope. People need hope. And here you have Peter writing to elect exiles. So he's in Rome. He's writing to Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. And he's writing to these little, 
bands of believers that are calling themselves churches and, well, they're exiles. The, the culture they live in, the government they live in, the, their bosses, they're not treating them well now because they're following this guy, Jesus. So they can't hope in the political system. They can't hope in their boss. They can't hope in their surroundings and their money and their wealth and their lands. So what do you hope in? Well, he's going to write to these elect exiles that they have to hope forward. That they've got to hope, they've got to set their hope in the grace that is coming at the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what God wants to communicate this morning to a 21st century people that live in a culture where we also feel often as exiles. We live in a culture that doesn't often share our values and views We are a lot of ways exiles and strangers and sojourners. What do we do? Well, we've got to hope forward. We can't hope in today. We can't hope in things are going to get better. We can't hope in like this is going to work out. We can't hope in here and now only. We must hope forward in the grace that is coming at our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So what we're going to do today is we're going to see our identity as obedient children is going to cause us to hope forward as we live holy. That's what we're going to do. We're going to hope forward as we live holy. So if you have your Bibles, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1, and let's see what the Word of God says to us. If you'd stand out of reverence for the Word of God, 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to begin reading in verse 13. Here's what Peter says. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you Call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Father, we pray that we would be those people who truly hope forward and live holy as we think about all that you have done for us in Christ. Help me, the preacher, help us as the listeners and help us to be moved during this time. We pray this in Christ's good name, amen. You guys may be seated. So we're talking about hope and we're gonna be challenged to put our hope in the coming grace, to hope forward. But before we get there, I just wanna ask, what are you hoping in? Like if you just think about it, what? What is your hope? What are you hoping in? What are some things that you put hope in? Because sometimes we we have hopes that become ultimate hopes that are not ultimate things. Like for instance, for some of us, maybe politics are the things we put our hope in. And we've got this hope that if we can just get the right person in the right place, then our country's gonna go great, everything's gonna go well, our lives are gonna be well. If, if, if our political views shared our views, then everything would be great and I would have a good life. So my hope is in politics. So I'm very anxious about elections. All of my effort is going into constantly watching news, constantly knowing what's happening, what's not happening. And I'm infatuated by this because what I believe is 
If the wrong people could just get out of the way and the right people could get in there, everything would be great and life would be perfect. So we put our hope in a political system. Or maybe for you, it's you put your hope in your family. Man, if I could just get my kids just to act right, like if I get my kids to behave and obey and do what I want to do, if they would just, if my house could somehow be at peace, then I would be at peace. So the problems of my life are my rebellious kids, and if they would just get their act right, then everything would be right. And so we put hope in this idea of the performance of our kids, or maybe it's our spouse. If my spouse would just love me or just pick up after themselves, like whichever one, like just bare minimum stuff, life would be great and it would be awesome. And just, man, I just got some hope that he would just get it a little bit, but he just doesn't. And so you have hope in something that doesn't work out. Maybe you have hope in Man, success. Like, like, I've got this job, and I want to turn it into a career, and if I could get a new job and that new promotion, that job that she has, that job that he has, if I could just do this and get enough customers and enough money, have enough retirement, have enough houses and enough vacations, then I would be completely whole and happy. So your hope is in your success, and everything you do is focused on success. Because you believe if I can finally get there, if I can finally just get success, then I will be whole and I will be happy. So our hope is in our success. See, it's not that any of those things are bad things. It's just when they become the thing we put all of our hope in, they don't hold our hope. Because those things can't hold ultimate hope. Only God can hold on to our hope. Only hoping in God is he actually going to be able to come through with what he has promised. So what Peter is gonna tell a bunch of elect exiles who can't hope in their culture, (coughs) can't hope in their government. They can't hope in right now. What they can is set their hope in what is to come at the return of Christ. That they are to hope forward, and that's what we are to do as well, to hope forward. So we have a command. The command is to set our hope on the grace that is to be revealed. But before we get a command, we have some work. Because what we're going to find is hope is actually hard work. It doesn't just come natural. You don't just wake up hoping in the grace to come. You wake up hoping in all the things you can see and all the things around you and you get infatuated with all the stuff and you forget that your ultimate hope is not here and now. It's what's coming to you by way of Christ. So it's gonna take some work. So let's do the work. He first says, therefore. Well, what is the therefore there? Well, we've just seen this great salvation we have in Christ. That we've been born again to what? A living hope through the resurrection of Christ. So hope is our birthright. We've been reborn to a living hope. So you have hope, it's your birthright. When you believed in Christ, you have been given hope in him. Therefore, because you have hope, you need to set your hope. See the connection there? You have it, now do it. But we still got some work to do. Because it's not just an easy transition. Because you're going to look around and hope in all the things you see, not the things you can't see. So he's going to do some work. The first work is this, preparing your minds for action. So if you're going to hope in the future coming of the Lord, you've got to prepare your mind for action. Now, what Peter wrote was not actually prepare your mind for action. What he actually wrote was gird up the loins of your mind. So I want all of you right now, just in practice, application to gird up the loins of your mind. So go for it. Do that right now. 
Some of you are like, what? What are my loins? Is this, what, what, am I gir- what is girding it up? I don't even know what any of that means. So our English translators just translated, prepare your mind. Because gird up your loins sounds a little strange. But to the hearers of this letter, that wouldn't be strange because they knew what it meant to gird up your loins because guys back then didn't dress like we do. They don't have pants on. They would have like a, a robe right? Which kind of looks like a dress today. So that's what the guys are walking around in. And it's great for walking. It's not good for running. So whenever you needed to do something like go to battle or run or like fight or flight, you'd have to take your robe and pull it up and tuck it into your belt. That's girding up your loins. So it's even like goes back to the Old Testament. You think when they sat down for the Passover meal in Exodus 12, um, what the scripture actually told them to do was to gird up your loins. Like when you're sitting around that meal, to have your loins girded. That means to, hey guys, tuck the dress into the belt so you can run. Because when you take this meal, it's go time. You're about to walk out of slavery into freedom. You're about to walk, so prepare yourself, get ready. All the stuff that's dangling around you, tuck it in because it's time to go. So now these people are getting this imagery of, okay, so I've got this excess garment and I need to tuck it in. I need to get ready to move And that's what he's trying to tell you. Hey, in your mind, because hope, it's a mind thing. You've got to put your mind in this. It's 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 something you do in your mind when you hope in something. And there's a lot going on in your mind. Like your mind's all over the place. It's a thousand directions. You're thinking all sorts of thoughts. I mean, how many of you guys just like your mind goes a little crazy sometimes, right? So he's saying, hey, hey, everybody focus. Like all those other things, distractions, gird them in, tuck them up. We got to get ready because this is going to be some hard work. In, in our culture, what we'd probably say is, okay, if you're going to set your mind, you need to roll up your sleeves. And everybody knows what that means, right? Roll up your sleeves. Like, let's get serious. It's time for work. So he's saying, hey, roll up the sleeves of your mind. Get ready. Get focused. All that excess that you're thinking about, do away with it because it's time to focus because this is hard work. And he doesn't just say that. Then he says, and also be sober-minded. So gird up the loins of your mind and be sober-minded. What is sober-minded? Well, we can think of the opposite, which would be drunk-minded. That'd be to be intoxicated in your mind, to be unfocused, to be belligerent, to be tipsy, to not have focus, to have blurred vision. So he's calling us to be prepared and be focused because what's about to happen is going to be hard for you to do. It's not natural, but it's your birthright that you need to cling to. So now that we're ready, we're prepared, and we're focused, notice what he says, set your hope fully on the grace that is to come. So set your hope, not partially, not a little bit, set it fully, that's completely. What that means is that the grace to come is our plan A. That's what all of our focus is. It's not like we're diversifying our odds and we're like, well, I'm gonna kind of like go with God might come back, but also if he doesn't, I'm gonna have this whole other life that I'm living. Just in case this whole God thing is not true, I don't wanna waste my life. No, he's saying, hey, exiles, live your life in a way that if the return of Christ is not true, then you wasted your entire life. Like set your hope fully, cling to that the way you're living your life is going to be validated at the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if he doesn't come back, we're a laughing stock because we lived our life for the wrong thing. So he said, set your hope. That thing that 
the rebels needed to defeat the empire. How are we going to get out of this? How are we going to do this? Well, there's got to be hope. Something has to change. Something is coming. Our hope is set fully on, notice, the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. So your hope is in that future salvation that is coming to you. That if you're a Christian, you've been saved, you're being saved, and guess what? You will be saved in the end. That's that full and final salvation where you're going to be made like Christ and live with him forever. That's the hope you have today. It's hoping forward. It's hoping in what is to come, not just in fixing everything here and now. It's hoping that one day Christ is going to return and you're going to receive that full and final salvation. So we're going to hope forward And hoping forward is going to cause us to live holy. And to live holy, we're going to get a negative and then a positive. So the first negative is for us to not conform to our old ways. And then the positive is to be holy as God is holy. So we're not conforming to our old life. Instead, we're conforming to the new life we have in God. So let's just read what Peter says. Verse 14, it says this. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So as these people, they're hoping forward. Now he's saying, hey, don't don't conform to your former passions when you were ignorant. In other words, when you didn't know God. Don't conform to that. In other words, do you remember um, who you used to be before Christ? Like, do you remember her? Do you remember him? They weren't thinking straight. They didn't know God. Your old self didn't know the glory of Christ, so you lived for you rather than Jesus, and you did a lot of things that were not for the glory of Christ. So don't conform. There were conformance to be molded, to be squeezed into. Paul uses that in Romans 12. Don't be conformed to the world. But Peter doesn't say world. He says don't be conformed to you. Don't be conformed to the old you. Because guess what? The old you still has some passions and desires, and it's really easy to slip back into the old you. And he's saying, don't conform. But, but notice, he doesn't start with don't conform. He doesn't start with a command. Instead, he starts with these words, as obedient children. And then he says, do not conform, and then be holy. So he doesn't say, all right, guys, here's the test. If you will not conform and be holy, then you're going to become obedient children. That's not the order that Peter writes. Instead, he starts with this identity statement, dear obedient children, now act like it. In other words, you're not doing something to become an obedient child. You are an obedient child, so now your behavior should follow who you are. See, this is like gospel order, and it's really important that we know this, that we are obedient children in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not what we do or what we don't do that make us obedient children. It's what Christ has done for us that makes us obedient children. Like, here's the truth. We were all disobedient children, but Jesus comes to the earth, and he becomes the only obedient child. He perfectly fulfilled the law of God. He always did what his father said. He was the one and only obedient child. And you know what he did? He went to a cross and traded places with us. On the cross, he says, dear world, if you will believe in me, I'll take your disobedience and I'll die for it. And I'll give you my obedience as a free gift by faith. 
So we become obedient children, not by obeying, but because of the obedience of Christ. Christ obeyed for us, and when we believe in him, we get his obedience imputed to us. We are obedient kids. So church, no, if you're a believer, you are a beloved, pleasing son and daughter to God. You have obeyed. It's already been done. You are an obedient child. Now what should you do? Walk that out. It's already yours. It's who you are. Now walk that out. So the first way we walk that out is we have to, the negative sense, it's do not conform to the passions of our former ignorance. So again, it's from, from identity. You are obedient children. Now stop doing what you used to do. It's pretty clear, like, stop doing what you used to do. So there is that BC moment, that was before Christ. So remember your BC you, the before Christ you. You didn't know Jesus, and here's what you assumed. I'm the most important person in the universe. And guess what? We all did, every one of us. We all thought we're the best, we're the most important, and we pretty much lived our lives as if we were Lord and God. That's just how we lived our life. But then we got this knowledge of, I'm not Lord and God, Jesus is. And I repented and gave my life to him. So now my eyes are open to he's the creator. He's the ruler. I'm going to live my life under him, not above him. So I have this new knowledge. And so what's Peter saying? Live in that new knowledge. Remember that Jesus is Lord. You're not. So stop living like you're Lord and you're in control and doing whatever your heart desires and whatever you want. Learn to live under the lordship of Christ. Don't conform to the old you. And I don't know what the old you was like, but there's usually two ways the old you kind of goes. There's the BC version that's just a rebel, and that was some of you. Like you've got stories that you could tell. You were that guy in school that everybody knew about, the biggest party, you had all the wild times. Like you were a rebel and everybody knew you were far from God. But then there are the before Christ people that they're not rebels. They're righteous. They're doing what their mom told them. They're coming to church. They're wearing a tie. They're sitting right. They're reading their Bibles. They're doing everything right, everything good. And it appears like they are very close to God and they are God's favorite. But in reality, you before Christ, as a righteous person, you weren't righteous. You were self-righteous. And in your self-righteousness, you were just as far from God. Because what you were doing is, by trying to be really good and work really hard, you were trying to get leverage over God so that he would owe you a good life in heaven. But it didn't work. Eventually, your self-righteousness got sniffed out. And you repented of your self-righteousness and you clung to the righteousness of Christ. So whoever you were before Christ, righteous or rebel, Peter's saying, don't go back to that guy. Don't go back to self-righteousness, thinking it's your works that earn your love with God. That's not true. We work from righteousness, not for righteousness. And also, don't be the rebel. Don't go do whatever your heart desires because that's the old you. That was the ignorant you. Now, you've seen Christ. Now, you have a different life. So, don't conform to the old you, but instead conform to God. Notice what he says next. It's going to be the idea of being holy, conforming our lives to God. Here's what we see in verse 15. There's a conjunction, but, 
as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So do not be the guy you used to be, but instead be holy. Now, why should you be holy? Because the God who called you is holy. So the God who called you, that's a reference to salvation. Who rescued you, who called you, who gave you new life, guess what? He is holy. And he's called you to himself. So if you are now his people, you should be a holy people. Now when we think of this idea of being holy and God being holy, I realize that I'm way out of my pay grade. Like I cannot from this stage even remotely tell you about the holiness of God. I don't think the angels could really tell you about the holiness of God. I mean, we're dealing with something that, that frankly, we can't truly understand how holy God is. But what we hear from the scriptures is that God is holy. And as I just think about that concept, I'm, I'm, I'm taken back in my mind to 15 years ago when I'm driving from Southern Seminary to Gatlinburg to go to a youth retreat. And for whatever reason, I decided to listen to book on CD. That was my you know, age there. I put my CD uh, in the CD player and it was R.C. Sproul, The Holiness of God. Amen. Yeah, amen, right? Yeah. If you want somebody to talk about God's holiness, go get that book. It's pretty good. I mean, I just remember just driving and for six hours just engulfed in this little Scion car. And I felt like for a moment I was transported into that temple scene where Isaiah walks in and he is experiencing the holiness of God. The, where all of a sudden the, 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 the train of his robe is filling the temple and the, and the thresholds are shaking and there's an earthquake happening and he is so caught up in this moment. He sees these angels, these cherubim who are flying around God and they're covering their eyes and they're covering their feet and they're saying back to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And Isaiah is caught up in this moment. He's like, I should be or I should die. Like in the holiness of God, we realize we should not be here. We should die. But then there's this altar and there's an altar which there have been a dead sacrifice and the altar touches him and all of a sudden he who is not holy becomes holy in the holiness of God. And I just remember driving in that car and just hearing R.C. Sproul talk about the holiness of God and the attributes of God. And I can remember just vividly like shaking my hands on the steering wheel, just imagining being there and seeing the holiness of God. See, something we can talk about, but it's really hard to actually know what the holiness of God is like. I mean, the scripture gives us different pictures of what even that word holiness means. If you think about the creation account, we're first introduced to the word holy, and we have six days of creation, and we have a seventh day that's different, it's unique, it's God makes it holy, and it becomes a Sabbath. It's set apart. So we get this idea that holiness, it's to set something apart, And of course, that fits very well with God because God is set apart. God is not like you and he's not like me. He is creator or creation. There is a chasm between us and God. He is holy, pure, majestic in holiness. He is other and we are creatures made from dirt. There is a vast distinction between us and God. And we get this idea of holiness. We can see it as 
As Moses stands before a burning bush and God says, take off your shoes because the ground is holy. The ground is set apart. It's different because I'm there and I'm speaking in this area. We can see this holiness drifting into the temple as we find there are holy objects that are only used in temple service. They are set apart. They're consecrated. They are other used for the glory of God. And we see this most holy place or the holy of holies where God's very presence dwells. And it's called the holy of holies because there's a veil. And if you walk through it, you will die because of the holiness of God, the otherness of God, the, the grandeur, the majestic, the beauty, the, the purity, the righteousness, all of that just blazing glory. His holiness will cause you to die if you stand in his presence. But then we get this idea that God calls Israel a holy people, a holy nation. So how can a holy nation that act like they do become holy? Well, it's because they are set apart unto God. Amen. And that's really what the idea of God telling us to be holy. He's not just saying, hey, just keep all the rules. He's saying, be a people unto me. Be separate. Be consecrated. Be devoted to me. In the scripture, we have, have vessels that are common and vessels that are holy. What's the difference between a common and a holy vessel? One is used unto the Lord, one is not. So what does it mean to be a holy person? Are you unto the Lord or are you not? See, if you're in Christ, you're unto the Lord, which makes you holy. See, we start with identity. You are actually holy in Christ. Like this is not a, okay, be holy, which means try to keep all the rules. See, we can often get this confused where it's like, okay, if we're to be holy, then we need to try to keep all the rules. And if you take that thought experiment into the New Testament, then the most holy people would be the scribes and the Pharisees. Because you know what they did? They kept all the rules. They didn't just keep all the rules that God gave them. They made rules for the rules. Like they had God's rules and they made their own rules to keep them from breaking God's rules. So they had rules upon rules upon rules. So you talk about holy people. They were the most holy people of all because they kept all of the rules. But Jesus very quickly smelt through their holiness. They were not holy unto God. They were actually a whitewashed tomb. In other words, great on the outside, terrible on the inside. They were a cup that it was cleaned on the outside, but it was rotten milk on the inside. You couldn't use it. You couldn't drink it. It was filthy. That their hearts were not changed. In other words, they kept all of the rules. They were very self-righteous and did all the right things, but they weren't holy people. Because holiness is not keeping all the rules. Holiness is being consecrated unto God. It's set apart unto God. That's what holiness is. Holiness looks a lot more like loving the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and loving your neighbor as yourself. That's what holiness looks like. It's not just listing a bunch of rules and going to church a bunch of times and not doing this and doing this. Holiness is chasing after God. Holiness is living your life unto God as that consecrated vessel. And notice our command, be holy as he who called you is holy. And then notice he quotes some scripture. He quotes the Old Testament. He quotes Leviticus 19.1 where God says, be holy because I am holy. And what he's done a few times is he already called us obedient children. Now he's bringing us back to the Old Testament, that same language of holy people. So what we find is what I think Peter's doing is he's taking these scattered Gentiles and Jews who were scattered in exile 
And he's calling them the people of God. And the people of God were Israel. Israel were the children of God. Israel were the holy nation. And now Peter's saying, hey, it's not Israel anymore. It's you, Jew and Gentile, scattered abroad. You're part of the family of God, and you are called holy people of God, so therefore be holy. So he's identifying us as this new Israel. Yeah, you're in exile, but you're coming into a promised land, and that's where your hope forward is going to be. Hey, gird up your loins, just like they did coming out of the exodus. Hey, you've been brought out of an exodus, and you are marching towards your future home. Therefore, have future hope, and you be holy like they were supposed to be holy but couldn't because they didn't have Christ. But now you can. You be the new people of God that they couldn't because you're now in Christ. So he's connecting these dots to the old story saying, hey, you are part of that, but you have fulfilled that. You are now the people of God. So be holy, but not just be holy. Also conduct yourselves in fear. So if you're gonna be holy, don't conform to who you were. Conform yourself to God and conduct yourselves in fear. In other words, fear God. Notice what he says in verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So in other words, they're in exile. What should you be doing in exile? Here's the command. Conduct yourselves with fear. What does that mean to conduct ourselves with fear? Well, first he says, if you call on him as father. So again, he's hearkening back to our identity. Hey, if you're saying that you're an obedient child and that God is your father, then that's who you are. That's identity. You are the people of God. So if you are saying God is my father, then don't you know who God is? Like if you're saying God's my father, then do you remember who he is? And Peter says, because he's actually the judge of all creation. And he's gonna judge everyone according to their deeds. Which by the way is bad news for everyone, right? Because if God judges according to our deeds, we are all done for because all of our deeds, no matter how good they were, they're like filthy rags before the Lord. All of our, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. So we get judged for our deeds and that's really bad news for us. But here's the, the gospel. We get, as Jesus people, we get judged in Christ. We get judged as his deeds are our deeds. Therefore, we go through judgment and escape his wrath and fall under his love. But what Peter is trying to explain to get in is the idea that, hey, God is a judge and God judges rightly and he doesn't show impartiality. In other words, he doesn't have favorites. So track with me. This is a little bit hard to connect the dots. So why is he telling, why is he he judge? He doesn't judge partially. He doesn't have favorites. Because here's what you might be thinking. Well, you know, I'm a child of God and I'm like his favorite and he gives me special privileges. Like, God bless me, I know that like the Bible says, don't do this, but me and God talked and we prayed about it and we're good. Like he, we, I prayed about it and God said, it's fine. Just, I know that was old, that's a long time. This, it's new and it, you're, you're fine. And so whatever like your sin, whatever your passion, whatever your desire, whatever you like, you're that favorite child that doesn't get justice. You don't get judgment. You don't get God in how he is to everyone else. You get that special treatment. So God's good with your life. You believed in Jesus. Now you can do whatever you want and God's fine because y'all hang out and pray a little bit and everything's great. Peter's saying, 
Um, no. You're not God's favorite child. He's not treating you differently. If you are calling him father, then you should live under reverent fear of him. Amen. You should live your life under him if he's your dad. You shouldn't just do whatever you want. In your exile, conduct yourself in fear. I'll try to give you a little illustration may help, help connect the dots. Just, just imagine that you're a teenager. Some of you go back in time. You're a teenager. Some of you grow up in time, but you're a teenager. Just imagine that your parents leave you home alone for the first time. Some of you can actually go to this when you happen. You're like, I got a story to tell you. Don't tell it yet because you're the illustration. But you're home alone. Your parents have left. What are you going to do? I mean, your parents have left, right? Well, there's a few scenarios. Number one, if you have no fear of your parents, then you're going to do whatever you want. I mean, it's like home alone time, right? Like Bueller's Day off, like get the Ferrari out, like let's go, this is awesome. Get over there, I'm gonna call my buddies, come over, like let's throw a party, let's trash the house. Dad's gone, I can do whatever I want. Finally, I'm free of him and I don't even care when he gets back because I'm not afraid of him at all. That's having no fear of your dad. It leads to a life doing whatever you want. But then there's an opposite view. And that is that you fear your dad too much. So when your mom and dad leave and you're left alone, you know what you do? You do nothing. You sit in your chair and you don't move. You don't go to the refrigerator. You don't make yourself a sandwich. You don't turn on the TV. You don't read a book. You don't play your video. You do nothing because you're so afraid that you might do the wrong thing, that you're paralyzed in fear. So you sit and you do absolutely nothing because you're so overwhelmed with your dad who might come home and lose his temper. So you're paralyzed with fear. See, both of those would be a wrong way to be a teenager home alone. See, what you should do is have a proper fear of your dad. And what does that lead to? That leads to you living in the house on your own with dad gone and you doing all the things you know that he would approve of. And you're making a sandwich, you're playing your video games, you're living your life, you're having a buddy over, but you're not doing things you know he disapprove of. You're doing all the things that you know that he would want you to do if he were right there with you. That's having a proper fear of God. It doesn't cause you to do whatever you want or to do nothing at all. It causes you to live under his authority. See, that's what Peter's trying to get these exiles to do. Hey, exiles, your dad is gone. He's not with you right now. He's coming. The Lord is coming back. But right now, in a real way, you're kind of at home alone doing, well, what are you supposed to be doing? Live with proper fear. Conduct yourself with proper fear. What does that mean? It's not doing whatever you want because daddy's not home. It's not doing nothing because you're afraid of dad. Instead, it's living your life under his authority, doing right now alone what you knew, what you know to do if he were right there with you. That's how you conduct your life. And for us, that's how we are to conduct our lives. We're in the dorm room by ourselves. What do we do? We conduct ourselves if, if Jesus were right there with us. Do the things that he would approve of. Enjoy the things that he says yes to. Flee the things that he says no to. Like as us, as adults and kids, what should we do? Live in fear. Do the things we know that Jesus would approve of. Conduct ourselves with fear. And lastly, remember the price of your redemption. Yeah. 
So if we're going to hope forward and live holy, we can't conform to who we were. We've got to fear the Lord as we live our lives. And we've got to remember the price of our redemption. Notice what Peter tells them. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now he's saying, no, remember, remember that you were ransomed from your futile ways. That word ransom, it means to be set free with a price. And everyone getting this letter, they knew what that looked like. They knew what that meant because they would have friends that were enslaved to someone else. But you could actually go and pay the person who owned the slave. You could pay them a price and that person would release them. They would be free. And then you could say, friend, I bought you and now I set you free. That's what it looks like to ransom someone. So what Peter's trying to tell these people, hey, remember, you've been ransomed from your futile ways. You've been bought from your slavery. You've been brought out and given freedom. Now, remember the price of that. And notice, then he says about the precious blood of Christ, and then he goes into a lamb without spot or blemish. Now, I think the reason he brings up lamb is he wants us to, again, go back to perhaps the Passover and then the sacrificial system. But if you think about that Passover, that first lamb giving its life for the people of Israel, they were, they were set free from Egypt. The firstborns were redeemed. They were ransomed with the price of a lamb. A lamb died so the sons of Israel could be released from captivity and go into freedom. And he's trying to get them to remember, hey, you are that new people that you have been ransomed out of slavery into freedom, but it wasn't a lamb, it was the son of God. The son of God gave his life to ransom you so that you could be out of your futile ways and walk into freedom before God. Remember your price. It wasn't gold, it wasn't silver, it wasn't money. It was a priceless thing. It was the very blood of Christ. That was precious, the precious blood of Christ. We'll take the Lord's Supper tonight. Every time I take the Lord's Supper here at this church, I can't help, but every time I take the little cup and I sit in my seat and Matt's playing a song and I can't help but just look down and just look down at this juice that's representing the blood of Christ. And I can't help but just to sit at this seat as we are at the table of the Lord, as the family of God, and looking down at that cup and think the only reason I'm here is because of blood. Like it's not that I was good enough, that I tried hard enough, that I won something, that I earned something. The only reason I'm at the table of the Lord at the Lord's Supper is because of the blood in the cup. That's it. That was the price of my redemption. And the only reason that I'm going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb in the future kingdom is because of the blood in the cup. That's my only boast. That's my only hope. And Peter's trying to draw our imagination to ask, what is the price of your salvation? How much did it cost? In other words, what did it take for a holy God to dwell with an unholy people? What did it take for your treason and your sin to be dealt with so that you could walk in the presence of a holy and just God? What was the price tag on forgiveness of your sins? It was God's own son. 
His own precious blood poured out for you. That is the price that it took a holy God to dwell with an unholy people. The only way to make you holy was by the blood of Christ. That's the price tag. That's the cost of your salvation. So what should that cause you to do? To prize it, to cherish it, to see how big of a deal it was for you to be made right with God. It was a priceless act from a loving Savior who gave his very life for you. So knowing that my salvation was brought only by the blood of Christ, what did it do for me? It ransomed me from my futile ways inherited from my forefathers. In other words, he's writing to a group of people in exile that had some patterns and behaviors that were brought from their culture, their raising, their education, their mama, and their daddy. And Peter's saying, you have no excuse anymore. Doesn't matter what school you went to, what culture you grew up in, doesn't matter who your mom and who your daddy were, none of that matters anymore because you've been ransomed from all of that by the blood of Christ. You've been bought and freed from all those patterns into new life and family with God. And I think you'd want to say the same thing to us. See, some of us, we're still blaming our raising. We're still blaming our school. We're blaming our culture. We're blaming that's just how things are. We're blaming our daddy for our temper and our mama for our gossip. We're just saying, hey, that's just who I am. That's just who my dad. You should have saw my granddaddy. I'm a little better than him. Peter says, "Um, Christ ransomed you from all the bad things your mom and daddy gave you. You have no excuse anymore. You've been ransomed from your futile ways, inherited by the blood of Christ. You are new now. So because you're new, walk in newness. Because you're new, don't conform, but be holy. So here, Peter, he's writing to this people who are living in a place that's hopeless. They're living in a time that's hopeless. Things aren't going to get better in their lifetime. They're actually going to get worse. So what do you do when you're out of hope? Well, you need a new hope. But you don't need Luke, the star killer. Instead, you need Christ, the one who made the stars and the one who loves you, the one who lived for you, the one who died for you. What you need is hope, future hope, forward hope. Hey, guess what, friends? Things might not get better in our lifetime. Things might actually get worse. Our hope is not here. Our hope is not now. Our hope is in the future grace that is to come. And if we will bank our hope in that and set our hope in that, you know what that hope will do? It'll pull us towards holiness. Because that's what hope does. It pulls us to holiness. Not conforming to who we were, but conforming to who God is. Because we know our price. And we're living in fear. Not fear because we're afraid. Fear because we know who God is. Let's pray together. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for Christ. We thank you that he gave his precious blood for us. God, I pray that we would remember that price this week, and that we would cherish our salvation, and that it would pull us from who we were into who you want us to be as we set our hope in what's to come. We thank you for today, and we pray today that we would hope forward and live holy.
We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You're listening to audio from Hardin Baptist Church. For more audio content or other information about our church, please visit hardinbaptist.org.